Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. My name is Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. The year 2020 was a pretty landmark one in lots of ways. Many of us found out how much TV we could watch before going mad. Some of us found out whether our lives were actually improved without our family members or not. But last year was also a landmark year for ESG investing, if for no other reason than it finally put to bed the idea of choosing between investing ethically and investing for performance. In fact, the MSCI World ESG Screened Index outperformed the regular MSCI World Index during 2020, and the top 10 performers in the IA global sector over 2020 were all ESG funds. But where next for ESG? In this podcast, sponsored by BMO, we will take a look at what the future might hold for these mandates. Listeners to this podcast will also be able to bank 30 minutes of CBD. After listening to this podcast, you will be able to understand what changes there have been to the advice process regarding ESG investing, describe how ESG investing might evolve in the next few years, and identify how investors' demands are changing in relation to ESG. With me to help address this are Keith Bolmer and Simon Holmes, Portfolio Managers at BMO, and David MacDonald, founder of The Path, the first IFA set up in the UK for investing in impact funds. Hello all. Hello. 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 So, as I mentioned, it's been a pretty uh, good year, um, well, at least 2020 was, for um, ESG investing. To what extent do you think that this is likely to be a flash in the pan, or is this a sign of the way things are going to be from, uh, from now on, uh, the new, new normal, to coin a phrase? Uh, Keith? Yeah, well, I think if you look back at t- 2020, there were quite a few tailwinds that, ha- that were there for sustainable-based strategies or responsible ESG-based uh, strategies. Uh, if you look back at exactly how uh, a lot of these funds are positioned or how they're run, you have things such as style tilts. Uh, so typically within a sustainable fund, you're going to get two type of styles coming through, uh, which are going to be dominant. One of them is growth. And of course, last year, growth significantly outperformed most other factors. And then you're also going to have a quality bias as well. Uh, with a quality bias, when you have uh, a recession coming through, as we had, or a sharp, sharp shock to, uh, to equity markets, uh, quality companies will tend to perform slightly better. So there, there were the, some factor bi- uh, biases coming through. Um, and of course, through time, uh, those will ebb and flow uh, depending on exactly how the market's going to be moving. But, but it's not to say that one will necessarily outperform the other. Uh, on the other side, you had some, some maybe shorter term uh, factors that came through specific to the pandemic. So you had factors such as, well, firstly, we had the recession. Uh, and through every recession, you're going to have uh, less reliance on things such as commodities. Um, so if you think about your typical, once again, typical type of uh, responsible type of fund, then they are going to be underweight companies such as your oil majors um, and, and, and extractive companies. And so therefore, that's obviously been a bonus. Uh, but that is a short term move because obviously the price of oil and the price of commodities will move. And as economies expand, as we've seen this year, um, then, then, then that sort of free money that you had last year uh, will come back, will, will, will be given back to a certain extent. Uh, other areas which are very specific to the uh, the pandemic, such as uh, healthcare companies and technology doing very well as we've all been working from home and clearly on the healthcare side for obvious reasons. Uh, once again, these are sectors that are, that are preferred by uh, sustainable or responsible funds. Uh, and so therefore, there's a lot of factors that came into the, uh, came into the situation to suggest that you were always going to expect a bonanza year from 2020. Is that going to repeat going forward? I don't think all, you know, this isn't a lot of these things are not long-term trends. Uh, they're short-term movements. So some of that will come back. 
but there's, there's there's no denying that good quality companies that are well run with coupled with good stock selection is going to lead to um, a, a good outcome through time. So yes, it sustainable investing will do very well, uh, but maybe not quite to the extent that we saw in 2020. Mm. Simon, you go. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what he says in terms of last year. But I think what I would add on to that is that taking uh, stepping aside from the shorter term parts, there's structural um, factors which really give, I think, a very fair wind now for sustainable investment. So, you know, one thing that did happen last year, it really raised the profile of existential global issues and climate change is probably the best known of those. So I think across the world now that that has increased the the motivation, if you like, to address that at least as an issue. Uh, and I think when you look now increasingly across whether it's governments, regulators, uh, consumers, investors and corporates, there's a lot more focus on let's actually let's have the the system, the the version of capitalism, if you like, that actually does incorporate costs, which perhaps we weren't paying attention to before. Uh, and I think that doesn't just focus on the environmental side. That can cover other things, too, uh, along, you know, social, for example, and governance. And I think taking all that together will really provide a, a long term support for sustainable investment. And whilst it's true, as Keith mentioned, that you'll sometimes get one factor or one bias doing better than others, if you if you put that with active management in a good portfolio with some diversification, then you ought to be able to weather most market conditions whilst having that fair wind at your back as a sustainable investor. David, as, a, as an advisor who specialises in this particular type of investment, I guess it's uh, been a, a pretty good year, pretty um, a bit of a vindication for you. How do you feel it's going to be going forward? Um, well, I think I'd certainly reiterate uh, Keith's comments that uh, 2020 looks like a, a, an outlier in terms of exceptional performance for the reasons that he uh, articulated uh, very eloquently. Um, I think I'd probably answer the question in a sort of more of a, a more macro view. Um, certainly when we were setting up the path, we looked at a lot of studies because there has been a persistent kind of um, narrative uh, that ESG investing or ethical investment, as we used to call it, necessarily meant giving up some diversification and uh, certainly giving up some investment performance uh, for, for the principles involved. And um, we tested that thoroughly by getting our hands on every study that we could do and, and, and meta studies of that subject. And um, the evidence certainly has been in the last decade or so, as far as we could see, that uh, is a myth uh, that persists in actual fact, um, the performance has been similar. So 2020 was a great year to be launching the business into uh, from that point of view. From the more macro perspective, uh, as I say, I, I think certainly where millennials are concerned and the awareness of this type of investment is much greater. We've got uh, the Greta effect. We've got Attenborough talking about it. So um, I, I think there will, be a, there will be a tilt towards more investors wanting to invest in this way. But, but what I would say with a very, very long-term perspective is if the planet is going to address the issues that need to be addressed and if we're moving into a fairer society and it, it's my belief that there's quite a strong uh, desire for that to happen it's not just talk now it's actual walk I, I think the headwinds for the polluting 
companies and those with bad governance practices will get bigger. Um, so I, 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 from a common sense perspective, it would say to me that uh, ESG investing is set for a more prosperous future, you know, it, it, because companies are going to have to change or they're just not going to be invested in or there'll be a downward pressure on share price. So um, it, it, is thermal coal and oil going to be the next breakthrough technology that people make a fortune investing in? It, it, clearly, it's not. Um, so I, I, I think these ESG metrics definitely are to be thought of in terms of something which can point to superior investment performance just by being in the in the right areas and avoiding the wrong areas. Uh, and David, just to stay with you for the, the next question, um, we were supposed to be, had we not left the European Union, uh, getting uh, new rules on uh, sustainable finance disclosure through MIFID II, though that hasn't uh, come into effect now. But um, what changes do you think um, advisors should be making to uh, their processes as uh, regardless of whether SFDR comes in, has come into effect or not or in UK equivalent at some point in the near future? Uh, yeah, so that, 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 that's a, a great question and certainly one that advisors should be thinking very carefully about. When it comes to the taxonomy and things like SFDR, TCFD, all this alphabet soup, even ESG, um, it, it's what I call the 50 shades of green question. You know, where are the lines? How green is it? Where's the green wash? Where's the sustainability wash? You know, it, it, it's a, it gets very complicated very quickly trying to figure out um, where the lines are. Um, from an advisor and a client perspective, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to have much more deep and meaningful conversations with clients. Um, it's surprising how many, it's quite difficult for me to see because we only deal with people who really are quite passionate about these areas, but we're picking up so many clients who are disgruntled with their current advisor because the advisor isn't engaging with this type of conversation with them. It's uh, it's what they care about. It's the world they're investing for, for, for their future, for their grandchildren's future. And um, clients are passionately interested in this area so i would say don't talk about it at your peril but do talk about it if you really want to engage in much more deep and valuable relationships with uh, clients and quite frankly it's a good client retention tool uh, and simon from the other side of the uh, of the relationship i guess what um changes are you seeing in the way that uh, advisors are um carrying out this um, this due diligence, I suppose, on whether their advisors need to be, um, whether this due diligence on whether their clients uh, should be um, investing ethically or not? I think, I mean, I'd agree with what David was just saying, that it's really important to talk about it. And as we understand it, it's a key part of understanding what your client actually wants. So it's not just about their risk appetite, whether it's cautious or, or more growth focused. It's understanding what are their values and to what extent do they want their investments to align with their values? So that's certainly what we've been talking about. And in, in terms of how we uh, create products for clients, we're making sure we've got a sustainable range that's available for those clients. And I think that's certainly been something we've seen supported in response from advisors that we talk to and flows into our product range. Uh, we're seeing a lot of interest and a lot of allocation to the sustainable range. Hmm. Keith, what do you think? Yeah, well, uh, there's there's a couple of points that I'll just sort of highlight. Um, one of them is 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 to David's point um, that it's much easier having a conversation with a client 
about things that they care about and things that they understand uh, than necessarily finance. Because for some reason, uh, as humans, we, we tend to struggle with finance and we find it a boring topic and we tend to get turned off. Uh, but you're going to have much, much better conversations, much more personal conversations when you're talking about exactly your morals, your ethics and, and, and climate change and how you want to impact or pass on your wealth to the next generations, what sort of state you want to be in. Um, so that's one side. Uh, from the other side, there's um, there, there's clearly there's regulations coming in, uh, which is an attempt to try and standardise, attempt to try and um, uh, to, uh, to, once again, to copy David's analogy, to, to, to try and work out exactly where those shades are. So uh, although MIFID has, has, has effectively been implemented in Europe, um, the FSA has said that they will be uh, implementing legislation which is of a similar ilk, um, at the same sort of standard, maybe even a little bit further. Um, so that will be coming in uh, into the UK uh, at some point. I think the consultation period for that ends at the end of the year. So, so that will be uh, legislated in to the whole advice process. Uh, from a provider's perspective, uh, and, and I think, you know, a lot of questions that we have is from advisors is to sort of work out exactly what is the difference between any fund that writes ESG in their name or sustainable in their name or responsible in their name. What does it actually mean um, in the so in Europe legislation coming through, uh, which is already in place, SFDR, uh, we have uh, so we run some some funds uh, in a sustainable manner in, in Europe as well. Uh, they you've got Article six, eight and nine classifications. So the Article eight and nine are the, are the important ones. Um, and that gives minimum criteria for what uh, these sort of funds actually have to go through. There are regulatory um, certificates or labels that you can also get. So uh, France, Belgium, Germany, they've all got one. Um, and, and, and once again, there's minimum standards on those. So you can, as an advisor, you, you, um, my, my guess is that that sort of legislation will once again be coming across into the UK. Um, so certainly the, uh, the Task Force Climate Related Financial Disclosure uh, which is, as you say, nice alphabet soup, um, that will be coming in and forcing us um, as providers to provide information on exactly what we're doing uh, within the funds uh, in terms of sustainability, what are the risks, uh, how we're addressing climate-associated um, risks uh, within the portfolios, and if we have a firm-wide policy. If we don't have a firm-wide policy, we also have to explain why not. Um, so why do we think it's not worthwhile actually having one, which, of course, uh, we've seen in the pensions uh, in the pensions world. Uh, and it's a very good way of actually moving this uh, moving this forward, because not many people want to explain why they don't have one. Uh, it's much easier just to stay quiet. But the regulator is not going to be allowing that. Uh, on top of that, uh, you will also have to detail um, or it looks to be that uh, you'll have to be detailing some standardized metrics such as carbon intensity, carbon emissions or your carbon footprint, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, so on and so forth. Now, a lot of that is already in place uh, in Europe. Uh, we've made the decision at BMO that because we have those funds in Europe and we believe that legislation is coming across into the UK anyway, uh, that we will be applying that to all of our sustainable responsible funds anyway. So I think as advisors, you will find more and more companies that are applying uh, whether that's mandated or not mandated, but more information uh, to, uh, uh, to in terms of disclosure as to exactly what's going on in these portfolios, what are we doing, what is the minimum requirements, uh, and what does it mean for clients? Uh, so, so there's lots of changes coming up. Mm. David, um, uh, Keith touched on on the issue of greenwashing. How how is that something that you, as an advisor, navigate your way around? Yeah, well, uh, it, well simply we we work with a couple of researchers and we uh, subcontract the job to them. So um, it's a huge job when you think of the number of funds that are out there. 
um, and the number that label themselves with some E, S, and G. If you're actually going to get, uh, if you're actually going to get under the bonnet of all of them, as I think, really, if you're going to do the job properly, you have to do. It's um, it's an immense piece of work. So the first thing really is to decide where the um, where the edges or the boundaries are for you and 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 for your clients. How far do you want to go on E and S and G, and how much of a positive impact or not um, should the funds have? And with that in mind, once you decide what your positioning is, then you can see whether anything breaches the boundaries that you've put in place. So um, a, a good way is to do a, a, a quick sniff test as i would call it i suppose funds have got um, fund fact sheets haven't they and um depending on wh- where you're at you'll, you'll see the industries that, that that companies are in um certainly been the case that many many uk value funds have had oil majors in it for example and oil companies often make it into esg funds uh, curiously because the uh, s and the g are good enough and they've got a decent story under e or what have you but uh, if it's a red line for clients then you know it, it's probably quite quick to um, identify funds which are not going to align with that but uh, i think you really need to know where you stand before you can uh, before you can make those those type of judgments yeah just to add on uh, david's point there i think transparency is the key thing and understanding what your client wants and understanding what your product is meant to provide is absolutely crucial and you know from our point of view we want to make sure we have very clear uh, policies whether that's excluding fossil fuels or, or what have you and also we feel we should be able to provide the full list of holdings so then another sniff test if you like is you can just look at the names in there you can see the policies and if the client thinks they want to invest because they're worried about climate change, they shouldn't be in a fund which has fossil fuels in it, for example. Mm. Uh, Keith, I, I just wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned a little earlier about the... Um, uh, uh, you touched on the evolution of, uh, of ESG and the ESG funds. And there's been a lot of uh, focus, I think, uh, on ESG funds as being funds which invest in solar panels or in wind turbines or something similar is, is that um is that the the way that uh, do you see esg funds should be or do you think that's likely to evolve i think i think it's uh, it's an ever evolving picture to be perfectly honest i mean if you go back it's almost 40 years um since the the, the first uk uh based or european based responsible fund was launched uh, back in 84 uh, and then if you think about the type of investor who was interested in in in, in buying into these funds uh, they were very much uh, coming from a religious, uh, a religious direction, and so therefore a lot of the, uh, the 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 ideals behind these funds were about what type of companies they didn't want to have um, in uh, in their uh, in, in their investment portfolio. So they would effectively match uh, the companies with their morals and ethics. Uh, so a lot of these funds in the early, so certainly eighties, nineties, and even sort of the early noughties were very much around uh, exclusionary. Uh, based ideals. If you look at today's investor that's interested in sustainability, response, responsible investing, um, then, then they're much broader based than just purely religious. Uh, and so therefore, people have moved away from thinking about the companies that they don't want to invest in or the sectors that they don't want to invest into, uh, more into and they're thinking more today into about the companies that they do want to invest into. 
Um, so what they are looking for is less about the exclusions, but clearly they don't want to have uh, any exposure to you know your controversial sectors such as fossil fuels or pornography or, or, or alcohol or, or sort of all the traditional ones. But it's for them it's more important that they get to the companies that they actually really do want to have. Now, in terms of the where you're coming from, the question should everything be environmentally focused? Well, that's one aspect. Um, and that's clearly the sort of the poster child. Once again, David mentioned before the Greta Thunberg effect, the David Attenborough effect. Um, that, that's that's what's drawing a lot of people in. Uh, but if any, you know, if we learn anything from last year, it's that it's not all just about the environment. So within sustainable funds, you're clearly going to have companies such as Austin or Vestas, which are uh, involved in um, wind power, wind turbines, renewable energy. Uh, but it shouldn't be it shouldn't end there because people care about the social side of things as well. Uh, so healthcare. Uh, access to um, uh, access to vaccines, for example, uh, you know, so your, your GlaxoSmithKline's, your your AstraZeneca's, Pfizer's of this world have been finding the vaccines for for COVID. Uh, that's clearly an important part. But then also, so is you know our aging population, looking after uh, old people, thinking about poverty, um, and and it's also uh, just going through and saying, well, just because a company makes something good doesn't mean to say it's a good company to invest into. And I'm not talking about from the financial side, which is clearly important, uh, but it's about the way that they make that product and about uh, how they treat their workforce. And that's becoming, once again, incredibly more apparent. You know, the days of, you know, Gordon Gecko and greed is good. Uh, that, that, that's that's gone. It's not all about profits anymore. It's it, It's more about uh, making sure that we live in a fair society that allows um, uh, allows the world to live in balance uh, effectively. So, um, you know, your your boohoo's of this world got found out because of their supply chains. Um, so, if you're not treating all of your all of your, um, your your workforce, whether that's once or twice or three times removed correctly, uh, that doesn't fit a sustainable world. Uh, and so, therefore, yes, environmental concerns will be at the forefront but it will not be the only thing that people care about or shouldn't be the only thing that people care about. And I don't think it is the only thing that people care about. So therefore, sustainable funds also shouldn't just focus on that uh, unless that's their particular type of theme uh, that they're trying to, uh, to, or agenda that they're trying to push. Mm. David, as someone who's at the, at the coalface, uh, Keith touched on the fact that during 2020, we did see the, the launch of these, um, or, or the growth perhaps, is better phrase of these social movements. Black Lives Matter, for example, we saw a number of companies which, um, you know, uh, expressed their support to, for, for, for many of those social movements. Uh, David, have you seen uh, your clients express a greater interest in this sort of thing? I would say so. Um, there's no question that the E in ESG has been the spearhead, I suppose, but let's not forget that there's an S and a G as well. Um, and you know, going back to the sort of client conversation, um, you know, th there will be plenty who are particularly uh, interested in the S and the G as well. So I think they're going to have increasing importance. Um, I talked to the research that we'd done on ethical investment and, and, and financial performance, um, where it comes to uh, diversity on uh, boards, for example, it would seem that there's a positive correlation between uh, better uh, gender and ethnic diversity together with good financial performance from companies. So again, it just all seems to me to, to feed into the um, doing well by doing the right thing or doing well by doing good um, area 
that we're in here. And uh, again, just common sense test. If you've got the governance of a company which has got a more diverse viewpoint, it gives the company a broader perspective on its position in the world and the direction of travel that it needs to take. So to my mind, it just makes common sense that the better metrics that a company has, you know, as a sweeping generality, they do look like they map to better financial performance. So um, it's, uh, it, it, it's all aligned. And I think, you know, we're at the point where we're just trying to understand the language and the landscape here. Um, and undoubtedly, there will be broader and more thematic um, funds which uh, break out of the sort of mainstream as this market matures and develops. Mm -hmm. Simon, how do you as a fund manager or portfolio manager go about uh, examining funds for these sorts of things, these um, social and governance uh, uh, measures? Well, I mean, I think just to, to come back to the broader point first of all, uh, I would say in terms of what, where is it going, I think the industry, whether that's investors or fund managers or companies, are coalescing around a framework which we're all familiar with, with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I think that's helped to make it easier to think through different parts of what you look at within a fund and also to get a sense of what you need to do beyond just renewable energy, which which clearly is important, but it's just one part of that picture. Uh, and I've seen estimates that we need to be investing as a global society something like $4 trillion a year to meet the sustainable development goals. So clearly there's there's a huge amount of a requirement for greater investment and focusing on a whole range of things. And within that, you've got plenty of things you can do. I think if you, to step aside specifically from renewable energy and look at even some of those other areas around industry and innovation or good, decent work and economic growth, that means good for the people doing the work as well as the people providing the capital uh, and making the profit. So I think looking through that lens, looking at how workforces are treated is, is absolutely key. And also looking for companies that can provide solutions into other parts of the economy, whether that's uh, industry or, or where we live in cities and towns or transport, absolutely helps us to, to get to that broader set of goals. But one other point, I think, from the question, which is, where is it going? I think to some extent, it's very hard to manage what you can't measure. So with a greater abundance of data, whether that is about you know carbon footprint, but equally about what the workforce looks like, how far deep into the supply chain you can look when you're investing in a company that has a supply chain across different countries, and actually at the policies that those companies have, is as important. And one thing which we do a lot of is, you know, we buy the companies and then we see our role as stewards of capital there. So we want to engage with the boards of those companies. And often that is about what is their commitment to, for example, uh, modern slavery and what are their policies around that uh, and what is it they're trying to achieve. So we look for all of these things when we're investing in companies. And I think it is also fair to say that there is no perfect company. So just as we as investors are trying to evolve what we look at. So those companies are evolving too. And you can have a good product. We want to see good conduct and we want to work with them. And often companies are very happy to work with us and others about improving that over time. So I think by taking all those parts together, you do extend the framework from a sort of pure clean energy part of E to other parts of E and across through into social and governance aspects as well. Interesting. And uh, David, uh Aside from 
the issues we've just mentioned. Where, where do you see um, investor demand for uh, ESG investing going? Well, I think there's quite a few directions. Uh, it could go in, um, and it will depend on what clients' particular interests are, I suppose. Um, if you look at the growing preponderance of uh, eschewing meat eating, for example, um, if we look at um, communities which are affected by lack of water, there are people who are concerned about um, taking plastics out of the environment. I, I think there's a, a, a number of different areas where opportunities will, will open up and, and we are seeing thematic funds being launched. I think it's also worth picking up on Simon's point though, until we've really got the measurement tools in place and we're really, we haven't yet, um, it's gonna be quite difficult to, 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 to break out in any meaningful way where we can actually understand the impact that the, the funds are having by being able to, to measure it. I mean, funds haven't even worked out whether they're just reporting on scope one and two or scope one, two and three emissions at the moment. So that's pretty basic. If people are just reporting on scope one and two and they're going, oh, look how green we are, aren't we fantastic? Then, you know, we're not even at first base yet in terms of measurement. Mm. Uh, Keith, how are you seeing investors' demands change regarding you know, proof of the of the good that um, it, companies are doing uh, within funds. Yeah, I think in in, in the past, investors were, were were more than happy just to in, invest according to the badge and looking at the investment investment policy and just assume, uh, in a way, or hope that the the, the fund management group would be um, and the portfolio management team would be doing their job in the way that they said they would be. Uh, you know, there'd be due diligence that would happen from time to time for the larger type of investors. But uh, but your 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 investors, uh, you know your typical sort of small investors, your retail investors uh, didn't have that that sort of access. Uh, but they're now demanding it, and now because there is a critical mass of investors that are coming through from both the institutional and the retail side, uh, it means to say that uh, that that fund management groups have to be much more transparent with exactly uh, who they're investing in, why they're investing in those companies, why they're avoiding other companies, how they're following their investment policies. And actually, what good is it doing? So uh, if, if you look at the type of reporting that's around uh, today, I mean, this is this is not industry standard. We can only talk for, 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 for what we provide. But, uh, you know, we provide an impact report. So for a lot of our funds, you will have um, through those impact reports, you'll have individual positions all highlighted. Uh, so uh, end investors can see exactly who's uh, which companies they're investing in, how they map to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, their um, their carbon footprint versus benchmarks, their water usage, their gender diversity, uh, their pay gap. Um, so lots and lots of metrics are coming through because now people really do care. And, and I think there's a certain element of distrust, I think is probably the best word, distrust in the industry that, you know, that, that, that these people firmly believe and they have really strong uh, ethical or moral views on exactly what they want to have in their portfolios, and they've they've either read or they've they they they've, they've had bad experiences in the past. Where, for example, you know one of the things that most people are passionate about is climate change, and as as, as David mentioned earlier, uh, you know there have been an awful lot of funds that have actually still got fossil fuel companies in there. So you big oil majors, um, a lot of the time that's actually been allowed. 
there's there's um, there, there are rules. So in the investment policy, that's been stated. So for example, if you look at the MSCI ESG indices, uh, or that does not exclude fossil fuel companies. So therefore, you would almost expect them to be in there. But uh, if people are just coming into this space thinking that they're buying uh, an MSCI ESG fund, then you'd assume that uh, fossil fuel companies aren't in there, and so therefore they get disappointed. But with greater disclosure, hopefully mistakes like that won't happen because it will be much easier to see. Uh, it's on the fact sheets, it's in the investment policies, it's in the re reporting um, that's pr produced hopefully on a quarterly or an annual basis. And so therefore investors will have much more opportunity to know exactly what they're buying before they actually buy it and choose their funds uh, particularly. But uh, but yeah, more choices means to say there should be more transparency, more disclosure, uh, and to hopefully less problems. Mm. Simon, I, I occasionally speak to um fund managers who say, well, I own this um, this oil major because I think it's an oil major which is making progress. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, I think this is one of the better oil majors out there. Um, do you think that, um, and this touches on some of the points that I suppose Keith was making, do you think that there's an understanding among investors about uh, some of those nuances? Do you think that um, there's more demand from investors to, um, to for things to be a bit more black and white? I think on this, I mean, this is a, an interesting topic and it, you know, one of the things it's called is about transition finance. So if we as a global economy totally dependent on energy, which itself is traditionally oil or coal or gas, how do we make that transition? That's really the question. And is it a good thing to be financing some of that transition if you go to BP or Shell or, or whoever and they issue a bond, let's say a green bond, and that actually does support that? And I think that most people would agree that if we want to transform our society, then investment has to be made. But what I would also say is that it comes back to just being really clear with what your client wants. So if your client wants to invest in a fund where there are no owners of fossil fuels, then you shouldn't be putting them into a fund where, where there are fossil fuel owners. So for me, it's really about aligning the, what the client wants with what you have in the portfolio. Uh, and I think that over time, if you do that, then you're less likely to have the sort of negative surprise where someone finds that, oh, you told me it was an ESG fund, but in fact, it has some some of the better oil majors, which I didn't expect. That's really the issue. Mm. David, I guess it just highlights the importance of advisors uh, doing their um, best to make sure that their clients know what they're investing in and that they have uh, done their um, due diligence. I think it does because there are any number of paradoxes um, and difficulties and conflicts and incongruities in this uh, area. I mean, you know, um, a, a bank uh, which is financing palm oil on the one hand might be helping lift people out of poverty by giving them access to banking facilities. Um, you've got companies like Tesla who are clearly a grand you know, a, 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 a leader in uh, EVs, uh, some question marks over governance and indeed the raw materials that go into batteries. You 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 don't need to, to, to look far to find lots of nuanced, uh, difficult conversations to be had. And I think it, it is very clear to know where one stands as a company or where the, the boundaries are around the different offerings that, uh, that the company has got. And fossil fuel is, is, is an interesting one. So do you support the influencer strategy whereby being a shareholder, you can 
in, in, improve behavior or, or, or do you take the divestment approach? And uh, I think that's, that's one of the more basic things to get, to get straightened out. I liken it to being in an uncomfortable relationship, shall we say. You can either choose to try and help the person in that relationship re- reform and improve or, 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 or you can leave. So, you know, where do you stand when it comes to that sort of boundary issue on, uh, on investment? Do you stay in and try and improve um, or, or, or do you take the exit route uh, by not investing in the, the first place? So um, it's a very nuanced, difficult area. And I suppose it depends on your own view and how bad the behavior is in 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 that view so um yeah tricky one well i i imagine we could probably do another entire podcast on that uh on that uh, discussion but uh in the meantime uh thanks very much uh, david uh, for that point and thank you very much to uh, keith and simon and thank you for listening uh tune in again uh next week for the next edition of the ft advisor podcast and to bank your cpd answer the questions below this article thank you very much even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.